Hey everyone, welcome to our Strong Mind, Strong Body podcast. I'm your host, Angie Miller, and today I have a very special topic, a topic that speaks very, very close to my heart and my home, and that is the topic of Alzheimer's disease. So we are going to talk about how fitness and wellness can help fight Alzheimer's disease and the role that you as health and fitness professionals can play in helping to work with people who have this disease or to prevent this disease. I have a very special guest who's been in the industry for a very long time. His name is Jonathan Ross, and he developed the Alzheimer's Fitness Specialist video course for MedFit. And so I know Jonathan just took a deep dive into the research, so I thought he would be a perfect person to come talk to us about this. So Jonathan, come on in and uh introduce yourself if you would. Hello, everyone. Uh, yes, my name is Jonathan, and I just want to thank everyone for giving me the gift of your attention, because I know our attention is a high commodity these days, and I, and I appreciate whenever someone gives me theirs. And um, as Angie, you mentioned, this topic is a super important one it, to you personally, I know, but to many people, it's going to be personally if it's not already. Most yeah. of us know someone with this disease. So this is going to be a fun uh, conversation, teaching fitness pros how to help people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Jonathan, you've been around for a long time. I've seen you around at conferences over the years. And um, I'm just curious, what tell everybody a little bit about your background in fitness and what got you started in wanting to deep dive into dementia and Alzheimer's and the role of fitness? Well, my 800 pounds of parents is what got me started in the fitness industry. I was uh, 24 years old. My father died and he was 424 pounds, which is almost 200 kilos. Um, and it was a pretty staggering, shocking thing, as it always is when you lose a parent. But also it was as much how he lived that hit me really hard. And I had graduated with an astronomy degree and I was working part time for one of my professors. I was really a bit lost. I knew I didn't want to work in the field of astronomy. It's more like a, an interest. And his death, my father's death, really just immediately gave me clarity on what I wanted to do. If I once I thought about working in fitness, it felt like all the little mental lights turned green inside of me for the first time ever. And I knew that I wanted to devote my life to helping other people live as he didn't and also live as I was, which that I was getting fit at the time. But I was also so I was seeing the things that I could do because of fitness. But at the same time, I was seeing what he couldn't do because of fitness and how it actually shrinks your world. When you have poor health, it makes your world smaller. You do less, you, you even want to do less, and your capabilities diminish and your world shrinks. And that gave me the immediate inspiration to get into fitness. Then more specifically, later on, about 2009 or so, I like to joke that my brain became self-aware and wanted to learn about itself. I got interested in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's just because of, it's just fascinating to explore what makes us us and it's really what goes on inside of our brain and then when that deteriorates what's that like and why and so that began the exploration of that particular topic and that kind of jumped into some other brain related stuff which is how we make most of our decisions based on emotion as humans which was a big eye-opener for me as a trained scientist and i just kind of had to you know accept that reality and understand that that affects people's motivation and willpower and the implications for that as we as Fitness professionals want to provide leadership towards helping people make consistent, lasting change. Then that kind of jumped into that deeper dive in that willpower aspect and, and just understanding what drives people and the things that they, uh, if if they're emotionally connected to something, they'll actually do it. And that was a big eye opener for me. And then it all kind of came together when I understood that when you 
enhance a social connection with fitness and you make it fun and playful, you draw people in. When you give people an experience that they want to repeat, they'll show up often enough to start getting the physical benefits, but we need to access the emotional experience. And to summarize this, the way I like to say it is that you can't change someone's body in a single workout, but you can change their mind. Mm, I, I really appreciate that. And I think that's so true. And coming from somebody who has been in the world of psychology and health for so many years, I agree with you. We think from our emotions, even if we're cognitive people, even if we are science based, um, at the end of the day, emotions drive many of our decisions, as you said, you know, for me too. And first of all, I just want to tell you, thank you for sharing that story about your dad. I actually didn't know that story about you and automatically I feel super connected to you through that experience because I know that you came into this space from a very authentic place. So my mom personally passed from a dementia related disease. And I know that's when my mission for fitness completely changed. It's what drew me to make so many different decisions about not just lifestyle, but just what my mission was in the fitness space and really bridging that gap between mental health and fitness and emotional health and building positive emotion and doing anything I could do to help people fight, um, fight off those things like anxiety and depression and all those things that also can, can lead us into cognitive decline and kind of help people get healthy from the inside out versus the outside in. Because personally, I think the fitness industry has it all wrong. We're all focused on the outside in. I've always been focused on the inside out, but I'm a thinky feely kind of girl. So, and it sounds like you are too. Um, now you are right now that you've had your moment where you had to check in with yourself in 2009, where you became more, um, self-aware, which is a huge, huge change, I'm sure. So yeah. kudos to you. Thank so you. before we go into this, I have a question for you, because this is a big one for me, because I know the difference, but I want everyone out there to know the difference. People tend to think that Alzheimer's disease is um, like, it's, they don't understand that there are many different types of dementias and Alzheimer's disease is just one of those types. So can we just do a quick differentiation into some of the different dementias? Because I do think that that makes a difference. Sure. Um, first also, I'd like to add that I was probably more excited to learn that you're a psychotherapist than I was to learn that you're a fitness professional because <laughs> I think having that combination is, is uh, quite powerful. And I read a quote recently that said, uh, I can't remember it, it was a psychologist himself who said this, but it was, emotions make great consultants, but lousy CEOs. And ah. we, we ultimately end up, most of us in society put our, especially when it comes to fitness and health, we, we kind of put our emotions in the CEO position and they just make terrible decisions. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so to differentiate the dementias, essentially Alzheimer's is the leading form of dementia. And you've got some other types where there's frontotemporal dementia. You've you've got Parkinson's-related dementia, which is a uh, type of dementia that people with Parkinson's ultimately end up with as the deterioration in the, in the brain tissue progresses. Um, you've also got Lewy body dementia, and so there's I think somewhere between 60 and 80 percent of the dementias are Alzheimer's, and there's some overlap in some of the symptoms that you get with the various types of dementia. However, they're not always all the same. And even for some clinicians, it's extremely difficult to arrive at a diagnosis. And 
uh, it's part of what makes the disease so difficult to deal with is, is that there's so much overlap in the various types of dementia and without a very robust uh, screening process, it can be very difficult to know exactly which one you're dealing with. And um, there can even be dementia that happens as the, the, the result of a stroke has might mean that the person doesn't have any uh, true dementia developing on its own. It's just that parts of the brain died in the aftermath of their stroke. And then so they can experience some dementia-like symptoms because of that. And the end result is that we can make a meaningful difference with fitness in the outcome of someone who has any of these types of dementia, but even more powerfully, because the number of people that have Alzheimer's in particular dementia in, in general is expected to explode like exponentially, logarithmically, however you want to say it. There's a lot, and I would even submit that health and fitness coaches are probably in the prime position to meaningfully affect this disease likelihood for someone to get it and to slow the progression of it, probably more so than other health allied health and wellness professionals, fitness professionals are probably the ones in the best position to meaningfully affect the outcomes. Yeah. Well, and I, I agree with you because it's about meaningfully affecting, because I think that one thing I want to put out there is that I used to teach stress management to college students. And one of the things that we used to talk about is fears, human fears. And one of the greatest human fears is loss of personal autonomy. At the end of the day, we all that's what we all strive for, right? We can't wait to become 18 and we can make our own decisions. And then um, then we go through our lives and we become the matriarch or patriarch of our families. And we are the ultimate, uh, you know, the buck stops here. And then all of a sudden, one day the kids come to us and say, hey, dad, I need to take your keys away. Or, hey, mom, you need to move. And, and people will fight tooth and nail to keep their personal autonomy. And so I think that we need to keep that at the forefront of, all of us want to be able to drive our own decisions. And I think that that's a big part of key, keeping our cognitive health. So I do want to reset real quick, Jonathan. Um, I'm talking to Jonathan Ross, and we're talking about how fitness and wellness can help fight Alzheimer's disease. Jonathan Ross, he just wrote a program on helping um, to fight Alzheimer's disease and what the fitness professional can do. This course is through MedFit. So Jonathan, I think that most of us know, or we've heard, we've seen it on social media, which is where we get all our information. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that exercise in general, it's good for the brain, right? Delivers oxygen to the brain. It's good for the brain. But at the same time, there's some things, and I know you talked about this in your program. There's certain types of exercise, certain components that make exercise even more beneficial. So I feel like this is where the real meat lies. And I can't wait for you to kind of um, make my brain go, wow, yes. <laughs> well, I'm glad to elaborate on that. Essentially, you said it already that all exercise is good for the brain. So if we use that as a starting point, if we say just any exercise is good for the brain and then we, we expand on it because... Lots of different types of exercise are good for, say, cardiovascular health, but we might want to explore which ones are better. And the easy way to remember in terms of brain health, the impact that different types of exercise can have on brain health, both in the short term and the long term, is think of the difference between treadmill running and trail running. So it's an easy way. This is going beyond just aerobic training. However, 
if we understand that on a treadmill, the road, as it were, is very predictable, and I don't have to think about the type of surface I'm stepping on, the stability of the surface I'm stepping on, my physical environment, nothing's going to change about that experience. So that if I'm on a trail and I'm running, each step is a decision. I'm on variable terrain. I have to receive input from my nervous system through what I can hear and see and even feel in terms of the changing landscape through my proprioceptive system. And I have to use that nervous system input to produce a variable moment by moment output. So each step is slightly different than the one before. And that, that input from the nervous system, from our physical environment, becoming how we produce the output, that's really the difference when it comes to brain health. So the short-term benefit is you have a more enjoyable, more engaging, immersive experience. You're fully connected to the experience. And I'll give you some examples of how we would do this in training sessions. But then on the long-term long side, when you exercise using these extra elements for brain fitness, you get a bigger boost in brain protecting chemicals. So if we can do something one way or another way and the other way is better, Let's do it the other way because it's better. So what's the other way? Well, there's some elements that we include where reactivity, and I'll go into a little bit more detail in each of these, and there's coordination and there's partner interactivity and friendly competition. And all of this is kind of like underpinned or on a foundation of fun or emotional enjoyment, which is like a novel concept for many people in fitness. Okay. And so, so reactivity, you've got reactivity. It's when you hear something and you do something or someone says something and you do something or you see something and you do something. So essentially, if we were doing a squat in a workout and if you're watching this and you can go ahead and do this, you could start squatting and you could put an arm out to the right or the left. And that's a little bit different than a normal squat, but I could also point. So the next time you squat, you follow the pointing directions of the instructor, or I verbally call out something like an odd or an even number, or maybe I use a certain type of foods, a category of foods like vegetables to put your left arm out. And maybe I use uh, animals to put your right arm out. So I hold on. Can I, can I deep dive with this one a minute? Cause I think this is phenomenal. So first I heard you say, cause I, I really like that analogy. I want to make sure everybody caught it because that made so much sense to me. Like the light bulb came on when you said it's the difference between a treadmill and a trail, a treadmill. I'm just going through the motions, one foot in front of the other. I don't have to think about anything. I can zone out when I'm on a trail, all systems are on fire. My brain is active. My emotions are active. I'm looking around. I'm paying attention. All my five senses are engaged in the experience, which is also a great way to reset the nervous system. So that's a phenomenal analogy. I, I'm going to hold on to that one. And then you're talking about reactivity, which I love that, that you're building on this because you're saying, okay, you can take an arm out, but now you can change it where you don't use words. You just use gestures. Or, you know, you're kind of going deeper with this, but I, I wanted to spotlight that for a minute. So give us some more reactivity examples. Absolutely. So reactivity, it's, it can either be verbal where you, so your coach says something or on the receiving end, it's auditory reactivity where I would hear something and you can use noises like that. You could clap your hands or stomp your feet mm -hmm. or squeak a dog toy or rubber chicken to make a noise that someone would then follow along the instructions to move. So there's auditory reactivity. And then there's also visual reactivity where the coach would provide some 
visual instruction. There's also kinesthetic reactivity where someone pushes on you and you try to maintain stability. There's an exercise I love to do called an earthquake plank where someone's in a plank and the partner's pushing all over the person trying to destabilize the plank. I'm super against long static planks because it's just a terrible idea. It's like what? No. <laughs> doing the alphabet over and over again. Once you're good at the alphabet, do something harder. So there's physical reactivity, auditory reactivity, and visual reactivity. And this ultimately has to do with uncertainty. And whenever there's uncertainty, we have to take in information from our sensory system and produce a slightly variable and specific physical response. So now our movements are determined by our brain paying attention to the sensory system as opposed to mindlessly doing leg extensions while we're talking about last night's episode of whatever TV show we watched. Right. So you know what word comes to mind is unpredictability. And in life in general, I don't love unpredictability, right? I love people who show up the same people who are consistent in their behaviors and emotions, people who are very well emotionally regulated, love that. But when it comes to fitness, that unpredictable component that you're talking about, that trail running versus the treadmill, that having to have all systems on high alert makes a huge difference because that means that, like you said, you're creating an experience for these clients. They're not just coming in and going through the motions. So again, I want to introduce you. I'm talking to Jonathan Ross, and we are talking about how fitness and wellness, the role of fitness and wellness in helping us to fight Alzheimer's disease. And Jonathan just wrote an Alzheimer's disease video course for MedFit. So he's sharing all his golden nuggets of information, which I personally love because um, for personal reasons, but also because I train seniors. And so my mind right now is processing all these different things that I can do with these seniors. So um, so keep going. You're doing amazing. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, What you identified with the uncertainty that's beneficial in exercise, it's because our brains pay attention to novelty. If you're sitting somewhere and you hear a loud noise, you instinctively look at it and you try to see what it is. And that's just the way our brains are wired. Novel stimuli create more engagement in our brains. And that's how we've been wired since we were cave people. And it's really no different today. So if we insert that back into physical activity, we make it better for the body for the muscular system, but we make it better for the brain. And we also are more engaged during the experience. So moving on from reactivity, much like novelty, there's coordination. Now, most people say they don't have the ABCs when it comes to fitness. They don't have abs, they don't have balance, and they don't have coordination. But everybody uh, has some degree of coordination because people text while they walk. So (laughs) they've got some, (laughs) right? They've got some. And so the sweet spot is when we have a coordination challenge, that's that's just beyond our abilities, just barely outside of our reach or close to it, then what we find is we have a high level of engagement. If it's too coordinated, like someone is taking a very advanced dance class and they're not ready for it, they'll just check out because it's not for them. If it's too easy, they'll also check out. It's no different than focus. If we have the right amount of focus, we'll have a better experience. So as we introduce exercises, we've all seen times where as fitness leaders, we perhaps introduce an exercise that includes way too much coordination for someone and their brain is trying to keep track of all their body parts and they just can't follow it. So we have to simplify. But when we have that sweet spot of a coordination challenge, it increases engagement because there's enough uncertainty to it and enough difficulty to it. We sometimes find that it leads to more engagement. And what will happen is you'll have some mistakes and mistakes aren't a bad thing. I like to teach fitness professionals, if you're doing some of this reactivity training with coordination, you want a B plus to an A minus. 
you really want an, an occasional mistake, but not so much so that it's going to make the person feel like they messed up. And there's um, some examples in the um, in the Alzheimer's fitness course that I developed for MedFit. There's almost 100 exercises. And in a couple of the videos, the people that I used to show some of the exercises, you can see there's a couple of times where one of the individuals makes a small mistake. And in one case, the guy just chuckles and keeps going. He's mostly doing well, but he makes yeah. a little mistake. But one little mistake causes him to chuckle. If all he was making was mistakes, he'd probably walk out of the frame and just say, I can't do this. So there's well, this little spot of getting a B plus or an A minus that we want to with reactivity and coordination challenges. You know, all the perfectionists out there right now are like nails on a chalkboard. What do you mean? I have to get an A. No. Um, you know, it's interesting because I had um, a gal named Olivia Ellison and you would, I don't know if you've ever seen the PERMA model in positive psychology, but you would enjoy that, Jonathan. But in the PERMA model, we talked about engagement and we talked about how people, there has to be that healthy level. It's like the stress continuum. You need enough stress to keep you interested, but if stress goes over the top, then you, you, you just give up. And so that's that same thing with coordination. It needs to be enough to keep us interested, but it can't be enough to where I just walk out. Like it, remember going back to, <laughs> it makes me think about years ago when we'd go to the fitness conventions and step was huge. And I love step. Okay. I'm here to say I love step, but there were a couple of presenters where I was like, oh yeah, no. Okay. So you lost me at turn step, triple turn upside down, you know, right side up. So there's gotta be that healthy way of making people feel successful, but building their coordination. Very <laughs> so true. very true. So, um, so it, what about partners? I, I like the idea of partners, which mm, post pandemic people are like, ah, about that but i train my seniors and partners and they absolutely love it so tell yeah, us a I'm little gonna, bit about i'm gonna go out on a pretty big limb and stick a flag in the ground and say people are gonna have to get over that um we need high fives hugs and handshakes we just do yeah. uh, it, we need physical connection we need partner interaction we need social connection and if you want to build a serial killer starve a baby of physical contact um, yeah. and certainly like anything else there's varying degrees of preference for this but what I've seen is that in doing a lot of partner work, sometimes the people that are the most enthusiastic about it are the ones that are the initially the most resistant. And the reason is that what they don't like about partner work is it's not real partner work. It's I'm in a circuit class and there's dumbbells and kettlebells there. And me and my partner are just both doing a shoulder press with kettlebells. We're not really interacting as a partner. But now if it becomes interactive where my movements depend on the partner, for example, we're doing a side lunge and I'm having the partners face each other. One person's the leader, one person's the follower. Now, one person who is the leader is going to determine they might lunge to the right and then they might lunge to the right again and then lunge to the left and they might mix up the directions so that there's this partner interaction where the movements or the direction of the partner immediately determine your physical response. And that's the kind of partner, partner interaction where it feels like a game. It feels like a little bit like a friendly competition. And the bigger, bigger component of this is that during COVID, we all went through this like big worldwide experiment that we didn't agree to sign up for on social isolation. And uh, the evidence is in, it's been clearly shown that social isolation, if you're on the cusp of dementia, you probably got it. If you already had it, it got way worse. And if you don't have it, your emotional state plummeted. 
we are social creatures. The reason humans have become the dominant species on the earth is because of our ability and desire for social cohesion and coordination. And again, there are varying degrees of that in terms of people's preferences. But sometimes, just like people don't like vegetables, they learned, they learned to not like vegetables. There are no fish that are born that hate water. So if we hate something that sustains life and sustains life doesn't just mean physically, it also means our emotional and mental health as well, it's because we've learned to. And if we don't like a lot of social interaction, and again, I know there's great differences in individual variabilities where people are on the introversion, extroversion spectrum. I get that. However, there's no human out there whose need for social interaction is zero, except for the psychopaths that you make if you don't touch the babies. Well, and here's the thing, you know, when you think about all of the older adult communities, what happened during the pandemic was they went on shutdown. And so families had to visit mom and dad through the window. And, and that is just like, that's like, um, you know, driving the whole uh, disease process because without the social uh, connectedness and without the love and the hugs from family, we we decline. And so, um, and I, I do want to talk a little bit about that, uh, the emotional aspect and all of that, but I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's huge. So again, I'm talking to Jonathan Ross and we are talking about how fitness and wellness can help us fight Alzheimer's disease. And Jonathan actually developed a course, a video fitness or, or video course on um, fighting Alzheimer's disease, how fitness professionals can help do that. And so, um, Jonathan, tell us now about competition, because I, I think that was the other component. I think you mentioned the um, reactivity, the coordination, the partners, and the competition, right? As some yes, elements. Competition. competition makes some people nervous, doesn't it? Because those are the people <laughs> who say they don't like competition. And then there's other people who, who think about competition, like, yes, I want to crush my foes. And that's <laughs> really not how most people approach competition. There's one woman... And I had her in my Funtensity class, which is a workout class based on everything I'm talking about today, reactivity, coordination, partner interactivity, and friendly competition, all in a context of fun. It's like high intensity interval training plus brain science. And we would always have a game or two at the end. And she said the, the most adorable thing about her attitude about competition, she said, I want to win, but I feel bad because I don't want the other team to lose. <laughs> that's just precious. You know, so it's for many people, competition is about collaboration. It's about I want to compete with my team and I, de I derive a lot of satisfaction out of competing with my teammates. Yes, it's always more fun to win. But for the, the non-traditional, stereotypical type of person who likes competition, they like the going through the process of competing with teammates. Yeah. Yes, it's better to win, but ultimately they're chasing the fun of competing with teammates. And that's and why collaborating. I, they're, yeah, they're collaborating. They're collaborating. You know, I mean, because there are some things that we do where you need to actually work together as a team. We play uh, like bocce with with big oversized med balls, you know, the ones that people usually like bounce off the wall and do wall balls with. We play bocce with that. I put a little medicine ball out and then they have to throw the heavy balls and get close to it. I do a rubber chicken foot toss where people toss the chicken off their feet. The other person catches it, puts it on their feet, tosses it back with their feet. It's, ah. a, it's a good core plyo exercise, but in a big circuit class, I'll have groups of two and we see who gets the high score, who has the most number of catches. So these are ways that you can insert friendly competition into 
training sessions. And this works as well with one-on-one. -on -one. I design a lot of my stuff to be versatile enough that it can be pretty much used in almost any kind of format. One-on-one -on -one training, you as the coach are the partner for the client. If you're doing small group or bootcamp training, boom, there you go. You just put people in teams of groups of two, three, four, whatever is uh, appropriate to play whatever game you're playing and off you go, have some fun. Um, Cause I try to make things and the strategies that I develop as versatile and as useful in as many different settings and with as much different equipment as possible. So it's not usually dependent upon a very narrow list of requirements because I want more people to be able to take advantage of some of the strategies of using this reactivity coordination, friendly competition and partner interactivity to have a greater impact on people's outcome. And if you change that individual experience, um, I, I've had people report things like, wow, I didn't realize uh, I was working that hard till I stopped because they were so caught up in the fun. And that's like a kid playing tag. Has that happened? Most adults exercising, that's not how it works. They're watching the clock. They can't wait till it's over. And then, but if we bring a time flies when you're having fun approach to fitness, um, it, it changes people's emotional response. And I'll just add this one last comment to this section, which is that one of the things I'm that I was specific about when, when I was approached about doing the course for MedFit for Alzheimer's Fitness was that I wanted a section on caregiving in that I want the professionals to take the course to be able to teach this stuff to caregivers because mm -hmm. there's about 13.1 million caregivers for the 6 million people that have Alzheimer's as of 2019 data. And most of those are family and friends. And you lose the ability to have a good emotional experience with your loved one when you spend all that time on caregiving. So I want fitness professionals to be able to teach some of these partner strategies to some of the people they work with. And they don't have to have disease to do it. But even if you have a husband and wife who just, you know, they exercise together, or even if they go for a walk, because this isn't just in exercise, this is also strategies outside of exercise. Right. You take a tennis ball and you bounce it around, or you toss a stick around and you catch it while you're walking. It creates reactivity even while you're walking. Your water bottles. I do it with my water yeah. bottles. Yeah. Walking is only boring if you let it be. And if we can teach people to insert these little elements in to their day when they move both in and out of exercise, we can greatly transform the response that people have because the reality is that Alzheimer's is mostly a lifestyle mediated disease. It is not mostly a genetically mediated disease. There's, there's, a myriad of things that we can do. And the ones that are most significant for health and fitness professionals are of course, exercise and physical activity, which are actually two separate things because there's your exercise and then there's your non-exercise physical activity, nutrition, stress, sleep. And um, well, actually that's probably it. Those are the ones that we can most meaningfully affect. There's others right. that are secondary to that, like diabetes that we can affect because of the physical activity. But those are the big ones that we're coaching people on and if we're not coaching people, we need to be. The future of the fitness industry is such that the population is skewing older. More people are going to present with Alzheimer's or something. They're going to have some issues, if not the whole subscription, of a bunch of issues. And we need to be better at delivering fitness to those people, but also doing so in a way that, that draws them towards it, as opposed to them just feeling like they're doing it because they have to. And right. when we do that, we change their emotional response to it. We change their level of participation in it, but we can also make it more beneficial from a long-term brain health perspective. 
Well, and Jonathan, one of the things that I really appreciate is one of the first things that you talked about was building an emotional connection with movement. And I think that that's huge. And I like to call it movement instead of exercise because exercise has a bad rap for many of the reasons that you were just talking about. But I also think that I, I couldn't be more pleased that you brought up the whole caregiver component, because if you look at the statistics on caregivers and what this does to a caregiver's emotional health and what this does to a caregiver's cognitive health and what this does to a caregiver's physical health. And you are right. It is generally a family member who is caring for that person who is diseased. And I know that I cared for my mom and I know that I would not repeat that experience because it is uh, tragic emotionally, physically, it changes your life. But it also gave me a different lens to look at my life through and to look at fitness through. Hopefully it made me more empathic and compassionate. But we do, we need to reach out to the caregivers as much as we reach out to those who are affected because the caregivers need our support. And sometimes what happens with caregivers is they end up closing up. They end up isolating because they're the person that they're caring for isn't able to get out and about. So then you are with them. And when you're most of your stimuli is coming from someone who is not able to provide stimuli, you don't have a lot of interaction going on. My girls were young at the time. So I was raising kids. I was that sandwich girl, raising kids and taking care of my mom. But I really appreciate that you wrote this program. So again, Jonathan Ross, tell us a little bit about where people can find this program, where they can get more information, because I, I want them to have access to this. Sure. It's a 20-hour video course. And uh, there's about, as, as I said, almost 100 exercises. There's um, six modules, I think. There's also a business module. There's uh, the, the exercise library breathes a lot of life into how to use a lot of the strategies that I talked about today. There's a lot of information on the 18 different lifestyle factors that can play a role in whether someone gets Alzheimer's and if they have it, how fast the, the disease progresses. And there's a lot we can do as fitness professionals in that. It's probably it's it's now the sixth leading cause of death. And with the population skewing older, the numbers are expected to balloon quite largely. So this is in general a, a big challenge for us moving forward in fitness is that there's a lot of opportunity out there for us to help people. In fact, I interviewed one woman for the course who mentioned that her family and her mom, they had the means to hire someone that could help them with fitness strategies that would have slowed the progression of her Alzheimer's, but they couldn't find anyone. Uh, and, and so there's a, there's opportunity out there. And so anyone interested in the course, the easiest way to find it is just go to funtensity.com altsfit course, which is a L Z F I T C O U R S E, just like you would normally spell the word course. So that's funtensity.com altsfit course for Alzheimer's fit course. And, um, you can save 30% on that by using the code ADFS30. If you follow the information there and you'll be taken to the MedFit site where the course is sold through, you can go at your own pace. Uh, you do get credit, um, you do get CECs from most major fitness organizations for the course. It was, it was, uh, super fun to put it together. It was very challenging, but in a good way, in that way that gets you kind of engaged and kind of excited about the work that you're doing very proud of it. And um, it's just an honor to share that information with so many people. And I hope uh, anyone watching this at least consider giving it a look. And, and I hope if you do take the course, thank you. And I hope you do great things with it. And if you don't, that's okay too. Just take some of what you learned today and use that.
Right, exactly. Well, and I really appreciate it. I have a great respect for you for writing the course, deep diving into the course, because you are right. It's more about what we are doing in our lifestyle than what our genetics are. And so we can do these things for ourselves. We can do these things for the people we care about. We can do these things for our clients. In any way, we can make an impact on what's going on in the world and how we can best help people. I appreciate that so much. So thanks, Jonathan Ross. Thanks for coming on. Thanks to all of our NASM and APA audience. Really appreciate you tuning in and you know how to reach out to Jonathan. You can reach out to me anytime. We will see you next week. Mm -hmm.